Father, we thank you once again this morning for your words of life that you have given to us, words of encouragement, words of hope, and words that never fail. We can always lean on your promises in times of hardship. We ask that your words would be comforting now as we look to see what you are doing in this world with the power of the gospel. May you knit our hearts together more for the Great Commission to labor together for the gospel to go forth to places that are not yet reached. Lord, we know that physical death is painful and hard, but we know there's a spiritual death that's so much worse. That there are people who need to hear the good news of the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for giving us your word, for we see the heart of Paul. We see the laborers in the gospel. We see how you work to accomplish your purposes. And so we just ask you to encourage us. Would you nourish our souls on the beauty of Christ, on the beauty of your design for the church, and the purpose that you have given each one of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the title of this morning's message is Laborers in the Gospel. Laborers in the Gospel. As we get to the conclusion of uh, the book of Colossians, we have been that we have been studying this past summer, we know that it is a book all about Jesus Christ. It's not Jesus Christ who we need to hear of every single day of our life and to think specifically about Him. The fact that He is supreme, that He has conquered sin and death, that He is above all things, above all wars, that He sits as the one and reigns, and that second of all, He is sufficient for our life. He's sufficient in our marriages. He is sufficient to cover our sins and to lead us all the way home. He is sufficient through the hardships of our life. What more do we need? And this is what Paul has been drilling throughout this whole letter. He has been pounding away at this one truth. Christ is enough. He says this, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule. And authority. You have everything that you need in Jesus Christ. Now, as Paul is ending his letter, he moves away from the theology of Christ and of the Godhead and moves into the practicality of what ministry looks like, how this letter came to those who were at the church of Colossae. Paul shares with us those who have been laboring with him in gospel work. And really, this is a window into how missions works. If you were to count up all the people that Paul was laboring with, all his partners in gospel work from the book of Colossians and Romans and Philippians, you'd find a list of about 60 people. It goes to show that ministry is done collectively. It goes to show that the body of Christ, when working together, can make a great impact in this world. And specifically, this morning, 
our passage shows us the nature of Christian community in general and specifically what was going on in the city of Rome at the time of Paul writing this letter and the character of those who were ministering. Once again, Paul is pulling back the curtain, revealing what ministry looks like with those whom he served. He's already spoken about Gnosticism, about the false teaching and how Christ can combat all of those. And now he is moving on to what does it practically look like to minister together on the front lines. And so Paul never visited Colossae. Paul never founded the church. Epaphras did that. But his heart is with the people. And so he sends this letter while he's in prison, and he lists the men that he is with. And so inevitably, when we look at this passage, the theme of this passage is missions. The theme of this passage is gospel work, gospel growth, which is how the book of Colossians began in chapter 1. He's saying he's praying for them because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which is doing what has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruits and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. And so being about missions, there's this famous quote by John Piper when he speaks about missions saying that you are in one of three categories, either you go, either you send, or you disobey. And in our text this morning, very simply it is laid out in the same way. There are those who go, there are those who are sending, and those who are receiving the message. And so I want to call you this morning to one idea, and it is this. Do your part in gospel work. Do your part in gospel work how unity through diversity spreads the glory of Christ. Why am I talking about unity through diversity? Well, because as we look at the list of the people that Paul mentions, we see both Jews and Gentiles. We see both men and women. We see both those who departed from the faith for some point of time and then came back and those who were faithful from the beginning and never faltered. We see people in different stages of their Christian walk, but they are all doing their part in gospel work. And as we listen to these laborers in the gospel, they teach us various traits that characterize men and women of God, those who are on mission and living life with a purpose. As we hear their stories, I want them to help us or to challenge us to see what ministry looks like and how we can play our part. And so Paul begins in the very first verses here, verses 7 through 9, stating and talking about those who go. Those who go. And there's two people specifically here. It is Tychicus and Onesimus. What Paul is doing in the very beginning of our section is what many churches do around the world. They receive information from the missionaries they support. And so as Paul begins in verse 7, he says these words, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. In the middle of verse 8, he says, I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are. At the end of verse 9, he says, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Paul has given the church of Colossae an update from a missionary who is in chains in the city of Rome with other believers. 
It is sweet to receive updates from those who we have in our hearts and our minds, those whom we support. And in this past month on your bulletin, if you look on the last page, you will see prayer requests from the missionaries that we support both in Ukraine and in Bolivia. And this is what it reads in a bulletin. Please continue to pray for our beloved brother Matthias and his family in Bolivia. He's continuing to preach through the books of Genesis and 1 Timothy. Did you know that? <laughs> He's preaching through Genesis and 1 Timothy for the congregation every Wednesday and Sunday morning. They also have a new youth pastor named Wilbur who has taken over as the youth ministry on Saturday evening meetings. And this allows them to continue with the ministries of discipleship and visitations. And here are some things to pray for that uh, Matthias is saying. Pray that God would continue blessing their marriage and health, continue growing them spiritually for Ilana's and Bennett's salvation. Pray for renovations at the church. Pray for the church's growth within its ministries. So that's Matthias in Bolivia. We also have Roman who visited this past March from Ukraine. And it was both encouraging and sobering to hear the update of what was going on in Ukraine, was it not? To receive this information of a missionary that we were supporting. And he came and he spoke about first the unity of the churches as they were uniting to work together during this war and how all of them uniting were showing the light of the gospel to the people who were fleeing from the war zone. He was also sharing with us the hardship that uh, they were experiencing. And so here we read what uh, they sent over to us to pray for. Please pray for our friends and co-laborers in Ukraine. They're still seeking to minister and displace to the displaced and the needy in Ukraine. Roman Karbatsky and his family Pastor of Reconciliation Church, Vova and his family, Pastor of Salvation Church. Keep their families and uh, of our ministers in your prayers, asking for God's protection over them. Additionally, we ask for prayers for the growth of ministry as we continue to share the gospel in Rivne. Updates that come as our missionaries are sending this information to us. Now, they send it to us via email or a phone call. Paul did not have that leisure to do so. He sends a letter with to, with, uh, through Tychicus and through Onesimus, who are bringing an update of what is going on with Paul in Rome as he is in jail. They will tell you all about my activities and how we are. A missionary update. But not only is Paul sending this letter as a missionary update, he is also sending this letter, as we see in verse 8, that you may know how we are, and, second thing, that he may encourage your hearts. Tychicus is going to encourage their hearts. How is he going to encourage their hearts? He's going to encourage their hearts by bringing the news about Christ, his supremacy, and his sufficiency. He's going to encourage their hearts because as they are wavering and there's false teaching surrounding them that they could be susceptible to, Tychicus is going to bring this letter of the, uh, to the Colossian church and they're going to hear about the sufficiency of Christ. And I want to ask us, has this letter not also been an encouragement to our hearts as we have been studying it? Has this letter not also lifted Christ high in our hearts and our minds, really beholding his beauty and his glory, causing us to be transformed? 
Well, the question is, we got to ask, who are these men? What do we know about Tychicus and what do we know about Onesimus who are bringing this letter from Rome to Colossae? First of all, Tychicus functioned as a special messenger for Paul. He had firsthand knowledge of Paul's circumstances. And according to Acts 20, we read this about it. When Paul left Ephesus, he was accompanied by seven other believers, and among them was Tychicus. Tychicus came from Asia, the place that now Paul is sending them back to, which is Asia, Colossae's Asia. And later in Paul's life, he was sent to Ephesus and also to Crete. He became prominent at the end of Paul's ministry, and Paul entrusted him with a lot of responsibility, including the collection for the church at Jerusalem when they were in poverty. And Paul describes him with these three attributes. We see here in verse 7, he says this, He is a, number one, beloved brother, number two, faithful minister, and three, a fellow servant. He's a loved brother. He's willing to stay with Paul even though the situation was difficult. How encouraging it is to have someone alongside with you when you are in jail seeking to still serve the churches that you planted, and even the churches that you did not plant because Paul did not plant the church at Colossae. He is a loved brother. He's also a faithful minister because love is revealed in action. I want to say this again. Love is revealed in action. And how is love revealed in action? Through a word called faithfulness. To be associated with Paul, the prisoner, meant you would have enemies. It meant that it would not be easy to travel. It meant that you would have hardship and it would be easy to step away, but we see that Tychicus was faithful. He assisted Paul with the many obligations, like sending this letter. Now, someone has said that the greatest ability in the world is dependability, and this is true. Dependability. Someone who is dependable, someone who you can lean on, someone who is firm in the faith, someone who is with you through the thick and the thin. Faithful ministry. Lastly, a fellow servant. Though Tychicus was not an apostle, he was assisting Paul in the apostolic ministry. They worked together in the service of the Lord, and then Paul was actually able to send Tychicus to Crete. So Tychicus traveled to both churches with news of Paul, the church at Colossae and then the one at Laodicea. We have to understand geographically that these churches were very close together, and most likely Epaphras was the one who started all of these churches because they were in the same vicinity of the Locust Valley. Now, the second person that we meet in this list is Onesimus. And if that name sounds familiar, because Onesimus is the runaway slave. And Paul made two significant statements about him. Number one, he is a faithful and dear brother. And number two, he's one of you. He is one of you who came from Colossae. He's a runaway slave who belonged to Philemon, who had been one to Christ through Paul's ministry in Rome. And so now Paul is sending him from Rome back to Colossae. It's interesting to note that Onesimus is called faithful and beloved as well. A beloved brother who is one of you. You would say that Onesimus was very young in the faith, but already from the beginning we see that he proved himself to Paul. He was one who was being sent back. Now as Paul 
speaks about those whom he sends. He now turns the camera from those whom he sends to those who are sending. He moves from the, what, the men, Tychicus and Onesimus, who are bringing this letter to the church at Colossae, to those who are with him. Who are Paul's, we would say, comrades? Who are Paul's fellow workers? Who are Paul's partners in the gospel? And Paul is going to list a number of men, all of them being Jews except one Gentile named Luke. They are fellow workers for the kingdom and those who have been a comfort for Paul. We clearly see here that the partnership that Paul had with these men, they're faithful to stay with him in this tough situation as he is in jail. They're not, they're not leaving him. They're not forsaking him. But specifically, what we read here in verse 11, we see this. They have been a comfort to me. Whether they have been speaking truth into Paul's life, whether they have been serving Paul by bringing food to him as he is in a Roman prison, whether they have just been spending time of fellowship with him or giving him updates of what's going on in the other churches, they have been a comfort to him. These are the last letters that Paul pens, the letter to Ephesus, the letter to Colossae. That's why they are so similar. He then writes the letter of 2 Timothy, saying that his time is near, he's run the race, he's been faithful to the end. This is the situation that Paul is in. It's coming to the end of his life. He needs faithful men to be surrounded with, and he is. And specifically, they are a comfort to him. Oh, this speaks, I think, so loudly to us this morning. That we can be a comfort to our beloved brother, Scott, that we can be a comfort to the Anoni family during this time. That we can be faithful in coming alongside of them and helping them in the needs that they have. Speaking truth into their life and just being present. And this is what Paul is experiencing. This group is made up of three Jews, Aristarchus, John, Mark, and Jesus was called Justice and one Gentile named Luke. Obviously, Paul had a close relationship they obviously had a close relationship with Paul in the church. Now, some of these men, we clearly see the connection that they have with Paul, but not so clearly do we see connect the connection that they have with the church. And the first cellmate that we see here with Paul is Aristarchus. Aristarchus. And Paul calls him my fellow prisoner, and he does what? He greets you. Now, when we think of fellow prisoner, we might be thinking that Aristarchus is in the jail cell with Paul, he could be in jail for the same reasons that Paul is in jail. Or there's also a second view that he shared in Paul's confinement so that he could be a help and a comfort to Paul. They could just be with him while he is there. He's one of the three Jewish believers. Aristarchus was from Macedonia. He was one of Paul's traveling companions. We read it in Acts 27. In verse 2, Paul was accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. And in chapter 19 of Acts, verse 29, we read, The city was filled with the confusion. They rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. 
He willingly risked his life at the riots in Ephesus. He sailed with Paul to Rome, and we know that that ship got shipwrecked. He was with him in the storms and the trials of ministry, and now he is alongside Paul in the jail cell serving and ministering to Paul. He's not like one named Mark that we're going to read in a little bit, who's next on the list. He is opposite. When it was hard, he actually stayed, whereas Mark, when it was hard, he fled. No matter what circumstance Paul was in, Aristarchus was there. A riot, void, storm, prison. So what do we learn about Aristarchus? He was faithful, but also he didn't look for an easy task. He did not run when the going got tough. He didn't hide. He didn't retract. He suffered and he labored with Paul. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Second person on the list, who's also a Jew, is Mark. Now, Mark has two names, John and Mark. We call him John Mark. John was his Jewish name. Mark was his Roman name. We know a few things about him from the book of Acts. Number one, the church met at his mom's house. So Mark grew up with, uh, let's say, a lot of comfort. If his mom was able to have a house that, ho that housed, you know what I mean, the church in Jerusalem. We also know that he was the cousin of Barnabas, and most likely Barnabas was a, a huge pivotal point to Mark coming back into the ministry because Barnabas is the son of encouragement. So when you're discouraged like Mark in ministry and you step away, you have a Barnabas who is there who is encouraging you. What else do we know about Mark? Well, we know that Mark writes the Gospel of Mark. And would you believe it? Mark presents Jesus Christ as the servant. Who would be the perfect person to present Christ as a servant than the one who learned what true service looks like? John Mark, who learned it directly on the mission field. This is what we know about Mark. Paul and Barnabas said on their first journey they took him as an assistant. He probably took care of travel arrangements, supplies, but when the going got tough, he abandoned the preachers and returned home to Jerusalem where it was comfortable. It wasn't a popular tour. It wasn't fame. It wasn't easy. Persecution, hardships, a message that was not received at every city they came into. We don't know why specifically he left, but he did abandon them. And on the second missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas have a disagreement. Should we take Mark? Should we give him a second chance? Or do we not give him a second chance? After the first time, Paul was probably very cautious. I don't know if I want to take Mark. I don't know if he's dependable like Aristarchus. I don't know if we can take him with us. But later in 2 Timothy, Paul writes this about Mark. He says, take Mark, bring him with you, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. So there's a turnaround that happened in Mark's life. Paul says he is profitable for me in ministry. Mark is an encouragement to everyone who has failed in their first attempts to serve God. He's an encouragement to those who start well but deviate for a period of time then come back. It goes to show us that Mark is just like us, that the Bible characters are just like us. They are people, simple, who are used by God as a vessel to spread his message of hope, the message of Jesus Christ. 
But we see that Mark did not sit around and sulk. Probably his cousin encouraged him and was helpful to him to get back into the ministry, to restore him to service. He proved himself faithful to the Lord and to the Apostle Paul, and therefore, like we already read, Paul says that Mark is profitable for me in the ministry. Now, interesting, there is a parenthesis in our verse here in verse, tw- in verse 10. You should, take, you should receive Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, parenthesis, and they probably know the situation with Mark, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Right? There's a little side note. You guys know the history about Mark, so when he shows up, you need to welcome him. As we continue, we see the third person in this list, Jesus, who is called Justice. Now, there's not much said about Jesus, who is called Justice. This is the only place in the New Testament where he is mentioned. We really know nothing about him, but he was one that was here on this list. He was one of those who were who was a comfort to Paul. Now, knowing all these three men, how does Paul describe them? He describes them in verse 11. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. The only men of the circumcision. The only Jews who are workers, fellow workers for the kingdom of God. Out of all the people who are working, out of all the 60 plus people mentioned in the list of Paul who was ministering with, these are the only three Jews, the only three men who are ministering with me. That goes to show really God's plan of salvation being unfolded, how the Jews rejected their Messiah, the Gentiles, door was open to them. The work of God, that it's a too small a thing that Jesus should be just for the Jews. I'm going to make him a light to the nations. And this is what is being experienced here. They're doing gospel work, and they are a comfort to Paul. And then we have in our list, out of those who are with Paul in Rome, serving and ministering alongside of him while he is in jail, Epaphras. Or Epaphras. Whichever one is easier for you to to say. Now, Epaphras has a longer longer section of of, uh, Paul writing about him. He is one who Paul gives a long description about. And the question is why? Why so? Well, it's because Epaphras was the one who founded the church at Colossae. He's now in Rome with Paul. And Paul wants to give an update about how their founding, we would say father, is doing. What is he praying for them? What's going on in his life? We read in the chapter 1 how he was the dear fellow servant, a faithful minister of Christ in chapter 1. He had been led to Christ through Paul's ministry in Ephesus, or the message of the gospel went from Ephesus, if you recall that. It was a couple hundred miles away from, from where Colossae is at. And so the gospel spread, and, and Epaphras was the one who most likely started the church. He had a lot of capital invested into the church, both mentally and emotionally. And so Paul spends more time describing what life looks like with Epaphras in jail. He is described in verse 12 as a servant of Christ. In chapter 1, he is described as a fellow servant. We see that once again as the title of the message, laborers 
in the gospel, we see here that this is not something that one person does. They're working together as a team. He is a fellow servant. He's not doing it alone. Epaphras believed in the ministry of the local church and in working with other saints. And so Paul goes to show what Epaphras is praying for. Who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, and what is he doing during this time? Paul, what is, what is Epaphras focusing on while he is with you in jail? One thing, he's praying. He can't do anything else. He's praying for you. He knows the hardships that you're experiencing, church, and here's what he is praying for. If you were to ask what is the characteristic of this man's prayer life, Paul would know very well because he shared a room with him. And so we see here a few things about him. Number one, that he prayed always, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, always, constantly, not ceasing. He doesn't give up. This is day in and day out. It's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. It's every night. It's every evening. It's consistent praying for the church. Second thing, he prayed fervently. We read here he's always struggling. Struggling, this word really means agonizing. He's agonizing in his prayers about you. He really cares about life change in your life. He really cares that you would be mature and be more like Jesus Christ. He really cares that you would receive this message about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. He is praying fervently. This Greek word was used to describe athletes as they gave themselves fully to their sport. They would be agonizing to win the prize. And so Epaphras is praying fervently for them. He's praying personally. He's praying for them specifically praying for you all. Not for all of the churches, specifically the church. His intercession was for the saints in Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. He prayed specifically. What did he pray for? We see here in verse 12, he struggles on your behalf in his prayers. Why? That you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. He's praying for exactly what Paul is writing in the book of Colossae. Mature, another word for complete. He's praying that you would be complete in Christ, that you would understand all of the resources you have in Him, and that you would be fully assured in all the will of God. If you would turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. In verse 9, this is the same prayer that Paul prays for the believers at Colossae. It's the same prayer that Epaphras prays. And I want us to read this prayer once again because this is a prayer that we could be praying for one another today. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased. Similarly, right? Constant prayer. We haven't ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will. God, reveal your will to us in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so it, as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. What wonderful prayer. 
This is what Epaphras is praying. You may stand mature. Opposite of what these false teachers are saying, you, for you to be mature, you need more knowledge. For you to be more mature, you need more experiences spiritually. No, what you need to do is you need to be standing perfect and complete in God's will. And what is, what is God's will for you? That you may know Christ? That you may know Him intellectually, but know Him personally in your life. That you may walk with Him as He's a good shepherd that comes alongside of you. That you may understand as He is revealing to you the riches of His glories, the hope to which He has called you, as Ephesians 1 says. That you may know that. That you may know the wonderful life that He has created for you, that He has given you, that is in Christ. That you can overcome the hardships of life because of the sufficiency of His Son. And this is what the desire of Epaphras is that these assemblies in these three cities might mature in their Christian faith, that they may experience this reality. You are complete in Christ. He prayed also in verse 13 sacrificially, for I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. I bear him witness he has worked hard for you, worked hard for you in his prayer. He's been struggling, he's been agonizing in his prayers for you. You see, real prayer is, is difficult. You need to set aside time. You need to remember who you're praying for. You need to think about what you're going to pray for them. Prayer is tough for us as, as people on this earth because contrary to the book of Colossians that says Christ is enough for you and your strength is in Christ, we might sometimes think we're self-sufficient. We don't pray enough because we think we can do it on our own, but when you're in a jail cell and there's no one else around you and there's false teaching going around in a church hundreds of miles away, the only thing you can do is pray. Prayer is hard because we can be doing so many other things except praying. And have you caught yourself thinking that when you get on your knees or you sit in your car or at the dinner table or in the morning and you wake up and you wonder, should I set aside 20 minutes of prayer? 30 minutes of prayer, 10 minutes of prayer. Wait, I need to finish something. Your, your mind starts racing to the list and the tasks that you need to accomplish. I mean, we all know one of the reformers, Luther, who said that I have so, much, so many things to do today that I'm going to spend the first three hours in prayer. I mean, talk about a man who understood the weight of ministry and life, the pressures of life. He said, there's so many things to do that I cannot do them on my own. I really need the strength from the Lord. Now, I don't know if he prayed three hours every single day. I don't know if it was once a week. But the fact that that quote exists, the fact that he said it, means that he at least had done it a few times, if not more. This was his life. Prayer to him was like breathing to the body. He couldn't live without it. And so Epaphras, again and again, as the book begins with prayer, the book ends with prayer because our life depends on the Lord. He prayed sacrificially for those believers. Next on our list, we see Luke. Luke, who was a Gentile chosen by God to write the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. He joined Paul and his party at Troas. He traveled with Paul to Jerusalem, was on the voyage to Rome. We see in the middle about the book of Acts, it moves from Paul to we. So Luke joins the voyage that Paul is on. And what a wonderful encouragement to have a friend like that who was with you through the thick and thin of ministry. To be with you at, uh, toward the end of your life. And also to be a physician, to be a doctor because the situation of the jail cell wasn't so great. This wasn't even a Motel 6. This was rock 
You couldn't have nowhere to lay your head on. These jail cells were not good for your health. And how wonderful it was for Luke to be alongside Paul, a beloved physician. And then we have Demas, mentioned three times in Scripture here in 2 Timothy and Philemon. Although he was with Paul, we also later read he loved the world, returned to Thessalonica. But we also know that he did not come back, at least from what Scripture says, unlike Mark. Paul's statement that Demas loved the world probably meant that the pressure of Paul's situation was too much, too much for Demas to be able to handle. The lure of easier life caused him to forsake the Lord. The allure of an easy, simple, coasting American dream lifestyle with church tagged in on Sunday was more comfortable for him than living a life that was sacrificially serving the Lord and going through the hardships of what following Christ really meant. Paul was no doubt saddened by this departure, not only because of the loss of a partner in the gospel, but a personal friend and a supporter. So we have a list of those who were with Paul, those who remain, and now we have those who receive. Those who receive this letter beginning in verse 15. And there's three groups of people here. We have Laodicea, Nympha, and Archippus. And it begins first generally with Laodicea, a large group of people. Then it goes to Nympha, who is one person, and Archippus, who gets called out during church service. And we're going to see how that happens. So first, Laodicea was located in the Lycus Valley. It was a neighboring city to Colossae. The church there dated approximately the same time as the one in Colossae. And most likely, it was also founded by Epaphras. It really began as a very vibrant church. We know this uh, when we read the book of Revelation. Energetic Christian community, but in the end of the century, it suffered from lukewarmness and formalism, as we read in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. Paul commands them to read the letter out loud at the end of verse 16. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea, and when this letter has been read among you, have it also read to the church of the Laodiceans, and see to it that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So there's one thing really that I want to note when it comes down to reading. Why, was it need, why did it need to be read out loud to the, to the um, church of the Laodiceans? Well, of, of course, it was at that time we did not have a personal copy. People did not have a personal copy of God's Word. It had to be read. Here's a letter that comes from the Apostle Paul. Read this letter in Colossae. Read this letter in Laodicea. And the public reading of Scripture that then Paul writes to Timothy, remain in the public reading of Scripture. Read Scripture out loud. Let God's people hear the powerful words of God, words of encouragement, words that affirm their faith, words that cause them to change their life. Paul's great concern was that the Word of God be read and studied in these churches because people did not have a personal copy. Now, we live in a, such a different world. You could probably go on your bookshelf today at home and find 10, 15, even 20 copies of God's Word. Before it wasn't like that. If you did not meet at home at Nympha's house or wherever they gathered at the Church of Colossae, you wouldn't hear God's Word. You would probably memorize a verse or two and try to re remember those. Now today we are so wealthy, we have God's Word in various different formats. Back then it wasn't so. 
This is what the beauty of uh, the, the 15th century was, or the 14th century with the printing press and Bibles being able to be printed and to be copied. Now we have God's Word. Give attendance to the reading, the reading of God's public Word. And so, have this church read to the church of Laodicea, and then Nympha, and to Nympha and the church in her house. So little is known about Nympha. Paul sends greetings to her as well. She lived in Laodicea. The church met in her house. We know that. But outside of that, we don't know anything else. One of the things that we do see from this is the fact that the church gathered, and the church gathered in homes. They didn't have any maybe a public area to meet, but they gathered in someone's home to fellowship together because believers gather. Church means gathering of believers, whether it's in a home, whether it's in an elementary school, or whether it's in a church building like First Baptist here. The church are people who gather together, and this is what they were doing. Paul says, sends greeting to Nympha as well. And then we meet Archippus. Interesting. Imagine you're sitting at church on Sunday, and uh, you receive a letter from the Apostle Paul himself, and you hear these words. See to it, Archippus, listen up. See to it that you fulfill the ministry that you've received from the Lord. You better not forsake it. This is, a, this is the word from the Apostle Paul. Okay. Being called out during a Sunday service. Imagine if that happened to you this morning. Let's see if we can try this out. Just kidding. We're not going to do that. What, but what a direct, what, what uh, um, accountability before the, before the whole church. Isn't this what church is about? It's about accountability when we live life together at home groups and on Sunday. We're not isolated. We bring our life here. We're held accountable. We, we open up our hearts and our minds for people to speak into our lives, to help us in our walks, whether it's in our marriage or in our parenting, or whether it's just our walks as a believer. We come together. And so we can be open, and Paul is open, and he's sharing with us what it looks like to live life together. Archippus, I've heard of you. I heard maybe that you were wavering in the faith or you were wavering in the ministry, that your knees were weak. And your hands were growing weary from doing good. But Archippus, listen. Christ has a purpose for you. God has given you a ministry. Be faithful. Remain in that. And fulfill the ministry that you have received from the Lord. Because it's not about you. Oh, poor you who's experiencing these woes of life. God uses you as a vessel to fulfill his purposes. So Archippus, fulfill your ministry. Was he discouraged? Had the Gnostic teachers invaded the church, created problems for him? We don't know. Were there personal burdens in his life? We don't know. But one thing we know for sure, fulfill the ministry that God has given you. He is going to give you the strength to do it. He gives you the ministry. He's going to provide the ability. Ministry is not something that we do for God. It is something that God does in and through us. And so if you ever find yourself in a place like Archippus, saying, I can't do it anymore. I'm too weary. I'm not fit for ministry. Remember this. Ministry is not something you do for God. It is something that God does in and through us, and He uses us as a conduit, as a vessel to fulfill His purposes. So, Archippuses today, listen up. Fulfill your ministry. Whatever God has given you today to do, press on in doing that in the power of Christ and His sufficiency. Now we see here this partnership in the gospel. Those 
who are sent, those who send, and then those who are receiving the message. We see here how this background, we pulled back the curtain, Paul pulls back the curtain for us and shows us what it looks like behind the scenes. All the people that are involved with their various backgrounds and the various walks of life spiritually, Paul lists them all. And maybe you this morning are in one of those categories. Maybe you will start with Edemus, who's looking around at this world and you're saying, looks pretty good. Looks much more comfortable than following Jesus. Maybe I don't have to be as radical for Christ as the church calls me to. Maybe I just can coast and be okay with that. Be on guard about that. Maybe you're like a mark this morning. You started well. You were faithful in your 20s. You're robust, full of life. Life happened. You had some kids. You got busy. Kind of, you're there in church on Sunday, but you're not really doing any active ministry. Although we know ministry is not just coming on Sunday, being part of the programs of the church, but ministry is people. It's serving the community at home groups by your attendance. It's serving the community at church picnics by being there and being present and fellowshipping with other believers and sharing the truth of God's word to others. As Ed reminded us last week that everybody is a counselor. You speak truth, or two weeks ago, you speak truth. All of us speak truth. So whatever your ministry is, wherever you're at, if you're, if you're a Mark, remember there's restoration. There's a Barnabas here today that can help you. Maybe you need to find that Barnabas. Maybe you need to attend and hear the words of a Barnabas to encourage you. Or maybe you're an Archippus. You're an, you're an Aristarchus today who is with, who has been faithful throughout the whole time through thick and thin. Wherever you're at this morning, what we need to understand is that there is unity through the diversity of our walks with Christ. That we are here to come alongside one another, to encourage one another, to fulfill the ministry that Christ has given to each and every one of us. To remember this, unity through diversity spreads the glory of Christ. Now the letter ends on a personal touch. In verse 18, Paul closes the letter with this. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. It's a personal touch. Letters were typically written by somebody else. They were audibly said and they would be written down by a scribe who would either have a candle and sometimes some of the words were not uh, clearly written down. That's why you have some differences in Bible translations, whether it's you or we in the Greek. It's, we're not going to go into that, but there's small differences. If you ever wondered why there's differences in translations, it's because when the Word of God was rewritten, it was verbally said, and some scribe would write it down, but under, candle li under candlelight or certain words that would sound the same, they would write a different word down. But then when we put all these manuscripts together, we can get to the right reading of God's word. But this one, Paul says, I wrote this with my own hand. I write this greeting with my own hand, not with anybody else. And Paul gives him two reminders. Here he says, first, remember my chains. And these two reminders encapsulate the entire message of this letter. 
Remember my chains signified the value of the gospel to Christ, uh, to, for Paul. It signified the value of Christ and the gospel for Paul. That Paul was willing to be in chains for the gospel. Were it not for a commitment to the gospel, Paul would not be under arrest, nor would he have faced the hardships that he did face. The reason why Paul was in chains in Rome is because first and foremost, he was enslaved to Christ. Christ was his master and he was obedient, whether it was easy or whether it was hard. And the reality is this, most of the time it's hard. Remember, my chains reminds us as believers that we are the servants of Christ, the slaves of Christ. We do not have our own will, but as Paul prayed, that we may know the will of God and fulfill His will in our life. The chains reminded Paul of the practical nature of his Christian commitment, and they were also an encouragement to others. And secondly... Paul closes with the words that he closes many of his letters. Grace be with you. The second reminder is a reminder about grace. It's not works. Paul ended where he began. In in a sense, the entire letter argues for the principle of grace. God surprised his grace freely, salvation. That he requires nothing but a trust in the work of his son. That grace sustains the Christian's life. And if God's grace is with them, that they need nothing else. This is what Paul has been arguing throughout this whole letter. The grace, the grace that has been in Christ is enough for you. That God supplies it freely if you were to ask Him. That Christ is your sufficient Savior. That you have been filled with Him. We cannot help but see that we have in Christ all that we can ever want or need. And I want to ask you as we close this letter, a last message in the book of Colossians. I want you to think for a moment as we are ending this book, what, how has this book been impactful to you? What nuggets are you going to take away from this book? What truths and realities are you going to start September with? This is one of the most monumental books of the New Testament. This book is a book that I constantly come back to because of the reality that Christ is enough. Because of the current situation that we live in as 21st century believers, when everything around us says, add to Christ for not salvation, but specifically sanctification. That you need a little bit more experience and a little bit more knowledge, and God says you have everything that you need in Christ. If you can't answer the question, what are the one, two, or three takeaways that you're going to get from this book, I want to challenge you this evening to come home, read the book, or re-listen to a couple sermons, and write down a few truths and realities that you can read daily from the book of Colossians about Christ. Christian life is about a relationship with Christ. What are you preaching to yourself about Him that you are going to believe that's going to help you to get to the place that you stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. It was an encouragement to all the people who've read this letter of Colossae. 
It was a breath of fresh air. It was a cup of fresh water for the church of Colossae in the midst of all the false teaching that was going on. All we need is found in Christ for salvation. All we need is found in Christ for sanctification. And I want to close with this quote that is, that is on, the, uh, on the screen now. It's a quote from a Puritan named Thomas Brooks. And this quote speaks about who Christ is for us, that he is sufficient and enough for all of our needs. One of the, the classes that I loved the most in seminary was a, was a class on Christology, the study of Christ, the person and the work of Christ. And the reason why was because it was for the first time in my life that uh, I came to really practically taste the sufficiency of Christ, to really understand what it means that Christ is enough for me in my life. And one of the quotes that stood out to me in the curriculum that we're reading is this quote from a book by Thomas Brooks, who was a Puritan, and he says this, and may these words be an encouragement to you from this book and for this week. Oh, sirs, there is in a crucified Jesus something proportionate to all the straits, needs, necessities, and desires of his poor people. He is bread to nourish them, a garment to cover them and adorn them, a physician to heal them, a counselor to advise them, a captain to defend them, a prince to rule them, a prophet to teach them, a priest to make atonement for them, a husband to protect them, a father to provide for them, a brother to relieve them, a foundation to support them, a head to guide them, a treasure to enrich them, a sun to enlighten them, and a fountain to cleanse them. What more can any Christian desire? What more can you this morning, fellow believer, desire to satisfy you and to save you and to make you holy and happy in time and eternity except this glorious Christ of whom we read? Father, we thank you for Christ, we thank you that he sacrificed himself on that tree, but not only that, that he lives within us today, that his grace is sufficient for every single day of our walk. Oh, Jesus, we thank you that you come alongside of us. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You supply all of our needs, Lord, and how many they are. Oh, we're not sufficient in ourselves. Our sufficiency comes from you. Help us to bathe ourselves in these realities and truths. Oh, we know that we need the strength that comes from you to do the work that you have called us to. Missions work is not only missions work overseas to people that have not yet heard the gospel, but missions work is, is missions work here in our families and the raising of our children. The gospel work in our marriages, that we would work in our marriages so that our marriages display Christ and the church to our neighbors, to our co-workers, the way we speak about our spouses. That people will be surprised how wonderful a relationship we have with one another because we practice humility and forgiveness and compassion and love with one another. Oh Lord, help us to do that. Help us to be missionaries in our workplaces. Help us to be laborers for gospel work. 
Lord, as we read all these examples of these men and women who work to spread the gospel, we're reminded that we are one of them somewhere in this list. We can relate to them. And we see, Lord, that they all were sustained by you. They're faulty people, but those whom you have tr you transformed to use for your purposes. And so, Lord, we're not hopeless. We know that our hope comes from you, our strength comes from you. And, Lord, we just ask that you would continue to, to use us, continue to fill us with all the fullness of the Godhead of Christ, of his sufficiency, so that we may be content and happy, and that may overflow in the things you call us to do. So we may not serve begrudgingly, that we may not serve because we have to, but we serve out of the overflow of what Christ is doing in our life. And when we get to that place, Lord, service and ministry becomes easy. Help us to live in that place constantly. In your name we do pray these things. Amen.